Hello and welcome to Centre Stage, the podcast of the International Centre for Women Playwrights, a virtual non-profit organisation dedicated to supporting women playwrights around the world. This series celebrates the work of members by showcasing excerpts of their work, followed by an interview where we can hear about their ideas and sometimes their process. I'm Jenny Monday, and in this episode of Centre Stage, we have Julia Pascal reading a short excerpt from her play As Happy as God in France. Julia is a playwright and scholar focusing on politics and war. She has had productions in London, the USA, France and Germany. To begin with, we have Julia reading a short excerpt from her play As Happy as God in France. Julia's work is copyright and if you're interested in performing this or any other of Julia's plays, you can contact her through womenplaywrights.org or her website, juliapascalalloneword.org. Here is Julia reading a section from her play. As Happy as God in France by Julia Pascal Scene 6 The Train to Nowhere It is May 1940. Eva Dorby, Hannah Arendt and Charlotte Solomon are in Paris. They have been incarcerated for three days in a velodrome. They are now pushed onto a train. It is May 1940. Eva Day 1 Hannah, no water, no food. Charlotte, day two. Eva, no food, no water. Hannah, day three. Look! A woman dressed as a Red Cross nurse arrives with water. Charlotte, Eva and Hannah hold out a cup and wave it. Nothing is given. During Hannah's speech, Charlotte is looking out at the countryside. Hannah to the audience. Where are we going? Charlotte to the audience. Where are we going? Ava to the audience. I have to know. Hannah. Does it matter? After all, we German Jews, we can adapt. Leave us four weeks in France and we speak perfect French. We know which are the best restaurant, café, where to meet a friend, see a show, take in an art gallery. But who are we? Are we citizens? Are we enemy aliens? Are we, mademoiselle, nobody? Are we afraid of death? No, we are not. And when those friends turn on the gas, we'll take a long, hot bath with a razor blade. We know why. But what is a Jew? And why should she exist? A Jew does not exist, you might say, because there is no God. And Jews who do not believe are not Jews at all. And God knows that most of us German Jews do not believe. Therefore, perhaps we are not Jews. Therefore, perhaps we will survive. But how can we, 
with a J in our passport. The suicide rate for German Jews is rising. Should we outwit them by killing ourselves first? Suicide, the last human freedom. But then we do their jobs for them. And what about our house, our work, our loves? Why must we lose everything because we are Jews? Crouch like an ant in a cupboard? Bury myself in a graveyard? Live in a sewer with the shit and the rats? No. We German Jews, we want to be Herr Doctor, Herr Schnorrer. Hand outstretched for a few coins, like a dachshund who tells everyone, Once I was a Saint Bernard. Yap, 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 yap. We must adapt. We must forget we are Jews. Madame Cohen, who leaves Germany in 1933, she goes to Prague, and suddenly she is no longer a German. She is a Czech patriot. And when this proud Czech is expelled by the Czechs because of who she is, she goes to Austria. And in Vienna, she becomes a proud Austrian. She even learns to yodel. Yodel, 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 The train restarts. And when the Nazis invade Austria, Madame Cohen flees to Paris. Bonjour. A passport? But you are not French, madame. But I am. My ancestors were the Celts. My grandfather was the Gaul Vercingetorix. A residence permit, at least? No, 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 no. If Madame Cohen ever gets to England, which she won't because they have quotas for Jews, she will ask the king. Your Royal Highness, you have to allow me to live here. My great-grandmother was Boudicere. For you see, Frau, Madam, Mrs. Cohen, certainly knows how to hide her identity. She is a Celtic warrior, a Roman soldier, an African medicine woman, a Chinese empress. She is a Viking matron, a Scottish Highlander, a Welsh choral singer. She is loyal to any country that will have her, and she will be anything you want her to be, rather than admit that she is a stateless Jew. Now we have a short interview with Julia, and I started with the question... Would you like to tell me a bit about the play reading you've just recorded? Please be aware that when the interview took place, Julia was in London at home and I was in Australia at home. There are occasional home and environmental noises in the recording. It's called As Happy As God in France, which is an ironic title. Where does it come from? When Napoleon allowed freedom for non-Christians, in other words, Jews at the time, there was a Yiddish saying, which was, now we can be as happy as God in France. So uh, France obviously being the best country in the world because of the food and the weather. Uh, and it's, it's a kind of self-mocking expression. But the play itself is about the persecution of minorities in 1940. And so therefore it's ironic. Um, 
and the play itself is quite uh, satirical and absurdist and uh, in a way mocks many, many ideas and therefore I think the title gives a signal of what's to come. So that's why it's that. Quite hard to talk about the play without revealing its genesis on me. I have a cousin whose father was a German Jew and we were in France and this cousin of mine said to me, my father's sister and my father's mother were imprisoned in France in a camp called Gurs, G-U-R-S, in the Southwest. And I didn't know much about this, although I lived in France at certain periods and I know a lot about Second World War history. I knew nothing about this. So I researched the history of Gurs and found that not only was his family there, but also was Hannah Arendt and Charlotte Salomon. And it came to me because I like writing about secret histories that what would happen if I gave myself the task of writing about the story of these women in Gors. And then I looked through the French archives and there's very little. And this is a story that France doesn't want known because it's the imprisonment of 8,000, what they called undesirables, les indésirables. Um, most of them were German Jews. There were some German Nazis, but the majority were German Jews. Arthur Kersler writes about it in The Scum of the Earth as a novel. And I took the story of, I imagined Hannah Arendt and Charlotte Salomon and an amalgam of my cousin's aunt and grandmother as three central characters who are each picked up in Paris and who are taken to Gours. In Gours, there were 8,000 women in these empty huts. In fact, when they arrived, there was nothing there. This was not a, a concentration camp where they were murdering people. It was rather an assembly point, if you like. And this is May 1940. It's, it's the armistice, but it's not the occupation. So France has ceded, has said to Germany, I will, that it will abandon any thoughts of war. It will be occupied. But it's, it's a very shaky moment in the summer of 1940, from May to October between the German invasion and the, and the German occupation. It's a kind of chaos, which as a writer is a very interesting time to write about. So I trace these three women's journey to Gors, and then using all the research that I found in France and Germany and a little bit in England, I, I show scenes of that life when, in fact, in terms of genre, it's rather a prison play, will they escape or not? Because of the chaos of France at this time, and, and it's policed by a French gendarme, the camp, gendarmes, it's not a German camp. There's a sense of chaos that people could possibly leave. There was an incident I discovered that the actual camp commandant, commander, burnt down parts of the archives. So in fact, there's a moment when there's a, there's a fire and people left. So I, I use these, these historical moments to, to inform the journey of the three women. And it's really about, do we, do we leave? Do we walk out? And if so, we walk out into a hostile countryside where, which is full of anti-Semites. We won't be murdered in the countryside. We don't know anybody. Um, if we do get out, we get to Marseille, then how on earth can we get a boat out of um, Portugal? Can we get from France through Spain to Portugal and get a boat? Can we get a sponsor in America to pay for our passage? So there's all these questions. So that's, if you like, the, the dramatic uh, journey within the play of what do they do? And so I, I follow these women's lives. And then at the end, there's an epilogue, in fact, in America, where you see Hannah Arendt and Ava Dalby, who is the conglomerate of my 
cousins, two relatives, talking about a little bit about what happened. And in fact, Charlotte Solomon was arrested in France and gassed in Auschwitz. She was five months pregnant. Um, so it's these three women's lives, but it's it's realized in a very surreal way in terms of, I use um, a lot of vaudeville, I'm using Brechtian techniques, John Littlewood techniques, um, and a kind of areas of nonsense of, of where does where does madness lie? Because the women were, were very hungry. There was almost nothing much to eat. And uh, living with, with fleas and rats, and many were dying. Um, so there's a state of height and intensity of almost hysteria that's going on where order has to be kept. So there's a, a tension going on also within the group of women that I concentrate on in terms of how do we how do we live, how do we behave towards one another? What happens when someone steals the bread of someone else? What is the morality? So all those questions are seamed in. I was very interested when you talked about those different sort of theatrical devices or genre. I mean, sometimes when we see that happening on the stage, it, it makes the um, content or, or the topic of the play even harder, uh, you know, more terrifying in a way. Um, would you like to talk about any of those, you know, the reactions of the audience or how that came about? Yes, I, the women in Paris who were picked up and uh, arrested in the Veldive, which is the big velodrome in Paris, in 1940. Now, if you look that up, you will see an enormous amount about 1942, but there's nothing much about 1940, but it, it, it is there. And I found a book which had the history of the Veldive, which did mention it. And it revealed to me that the Veldive had also been used for circuses and for parades and for huge uh, entertainment events, which gave me the idea of how am I going to present something which needs thousands of people, uh, which I've seen in films, with five women on stage. And so I use a kind of vaudeville so that the actors become commentators on what's going on and they t tell the audience, so they treat the audience as if they're watching this massive spectacle. Um, so it's quite funny, but it's horrific. Um, things like going to the toilet, uh, Hannah Arendt needs to go to the toilet. And, and this is what I read of, of how this happened, that other women would stand in front to guard the women who needed to crouch down so that they wouldn't be observed by the gendarmes so that they would have some modicum of respectability. So that of course gives you an idea as a writer of how you can have someone crouching, someone standing in front with a, with a piece of cloth uh, and you can, show the, the banality and the horror of just the normal private activities that every human being needs to do becomes an ordeal. Um, and the, in that I interspersed some of the past history of the bicycle rides, of um, the Jewish boxes of boxing matches there, uh, so that you've got the history and the present happening at the same time within this horror. A second incident, we did some workshops, I did some workshops with some actors of mine and I shared with them the thought of, I don't know whether this needs men in it or not. And they said, no, no, you must do it just with women. And I said, yes, but we've got a rape scene. So in fact, in Gorse, the French gendarmes would um, take a woman from the camp and, and or take several women every night and rape them. And I wanted to show that. So I, I said to the actors, how do you think this will work? And they said, you the woman can show through her body language, she will just, you'll just have her get up and leave. And, and it will, from, the, from the body language of the women on stage, we will understand 
Um, and we had a reading on Zoom of that quite recently, and, and the reaction was that people were really horrified by that. They see nothing, but they understand through the body movements that, 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 that this is a banal, everyday occurrence, and it, it, it's so casual that one doesn't even register it. And, and it's, it's casualness and its presentation in this very simple way, rather than in any realized way, was, was more disturbing than, than had it been done for real, as, as it might have been done on, on film. Yes, in my imagination, it it is pretty horrifying. Um, yeah. Julia, how how does the play conclude? It concludes with this epilogue. It's it jumps time, so the women are young at the beginning, and then two of them are elderly. In fact, one is dead and speaks after death. Um, so. It occurred to me in, in terms of casting it, that one would have to think of women in the, much older than they, than they really were. But that's a slight problem. I'm, I'm still wrestling with that. I just cast it when we were doing some workshop reading with actors who understood what I was writing and understood the, the, the hinterland of the German Jew, because the three of them are German Jews with, a, with an enormous cultural commonality and uh, playfulness and level of knowledge. Um, so it's, I don't quite know how I can resolve that, but because they're in their 80s, two are in their 70s and 80s at the end, and, and they're 16 and early 30s, late 30s in the bulk of the play. So it's a kind of problem, isn't it? I, I haven't resolved it. Um, a theatrical uh, problem to be resolved and, um, you know, more theatrical devices to be employed in, in getting to the conclusion. Um, yes. Julia, I really enjoyed um, reading the play that you sent me earlier, um, must be even 12 months ago, um, The Honeypot. So oh. you like um, European um, settings for your plays and you like a little bit of um, spy thriller, I think. Um, would you like to talk to me a little bit about that play? Absolutely. So uh, most of my plays are sourced by people I have met or histories I've heard from people. Um, I had a relative by marriage who had worked as a spy for Mossad. She was a tall, blonde Swedish woman. And I met her, she was in her 70s, she's dead now. And I said to her, why on, she married my uncle, so there's, there's a connection, who went to live in Israel in, in 1948, 49. And I said, why on earth did you do this? She wasn't a Jewish woman. And she said, well, from my generation, I felt very guilty that as a Swede, nothing had happened to me. And yet so many people I know of my generation had died. So I decided to go to Israel. And of course, she was the perfect cover because she was blonde and Christian, um, she was used by Mossad as, as a honeypot. Uh, my research shows me that this happens in every country, that everyone's at it. Um, sometimes they use male lovers or female lovers, depending. It's very common practice. And I became very interested in what that meant to lose your identity, so, and, and to pretend to be someone else and to put your life at risk, I suppose, in a sexual way for a cause you believed in. Um, it's a kind of bravery and madness that, that I found fascinating. So the story there is that she goes to Israel, she becomes involved with Mossad, and her mission is to gain vengeance on the, after the Munich Olympics of 1972, 
when 13 Israeli uh, sportsmen were murdered by the PLO, the Golda Meir set up a whole strategy to get vengeance. And part, one part of the strategy was the use of women to seduce the perpetrators, uh, spend a night with them, and then murder them during the night. This is quite well known. I'm not saying anything that's not out there in the history books. And this woman did that. Uh, and I was quite shocked to be in the presence of someone who'd done it, but also as a playwright thinking, what a very interesting world this is. So she's a sweet, I've written her as a Swedish mother who abandons her rather boring marriage to do something with her life. And if it means that she dies, she doesn't care because at least she has changed something or affected something. It's a, a sense of self pride. And the woman as, as murderer for a political reason interested me as a writer. And so I went on that journey. The first half of it is her education into Mossad. And the second half is her actual encounter with a Palestinian who is very attractive and interesting to her. And so the audience is then given the dilemma of, well, will she, won't she, or will she uh, overcome uh, her, her impulse and will she uh, just dodge it? And uh, well, do you want me to tell you the story? Um. Well, I think that that is um, a very attractive play and, you know, maybe we can kind of tempt somebody's interest to um, be interested enough to read it. So, you know, perhaps um, I'll remind uh, listeners at the end that they can contact you if they do play. So, um, yes. and I think it, it's very theatrical. I think that um, it would make... Um, a very nice play for someone to pick up and produce. Um, Julia, perhaps uh, it sounds like when you're talking to me, it sounds like you like to read about history. Um, not a, I mean, the honeypot was obviously a person you encountered, but it sounds like you like to read history and particularly about women. And mm -hmm. is that kind of often the inspiration for your playwriting? I think it's it's mostly... Um, the first important play I think I've written was Teresa, which is the history, another secret history, of what the British, uh, a British narrative. So we learn the trope that uh, the British would never have behaved like the European, the occupied New European countries in World War II. We would not have uh, murdered our Jews or, or allowed them to be taken. The Channel Islands, which is a British territory, was occupied. It's the only British territory that was occupied by the Nazis, as far as I know and from my research. And I read the story of three Jewish women who were caught in the Channel Islands and who were deported but with the agency and help and full collaboration of the British, British authorities on Guernsey and Jersey. And this is a story which is not known, it's still quite hidden. I wrote it in 1990, and when I called theatres to get a production up, they, they didn't believe me that this had happened, that the British had betrayed the Jews. And then it became more public, and of course they did believe me, and it toured for a long time. We did it in England and France and Germany and Austria. It had an enormous success because it was a secret history. Um, and that came to me from a newspaper article. So that history was obviously one that happened before I was born, but other more recent histories have come to me. A colleague of mine works with immigrants and refugees and she told me, I want you to meet this Kurdish woman who escaped from Turkey and came to England on a false passport. 
So I met her. Her English actually was not very good, but I spent some time with her and I absorbed something of her, some of her atmosphere, which, which gave me a, a very interesting inspiration. And I, I learned about Kurdish women who are fighters in Turkey, fighting for independence. But I had the story of, of what I wanted to write, but I didn't want to write a documentary about now. What I'm always in search of is structure. And I began to think about Medea um, as a foreign woman who, who is betrayed and who kills her children. And I thought of, well, what would happen if I allowed those two stories to, to merge together? And so this is Blueprint Medea, which in fact was done last year at the Finborough. Um, it, it is the Medea story, and it really pleased me that the, the name Medea, coming from the Medes, actually fits in with the Kurdish hinterland and geography, that, that it's a name that's, that's generic also to the territory. And, and somehow it works, the idea of the Kurdish-Turkish fighter who comes to England and falls in love with, um, in fact, I have her fall in love with a son of an Iraqi, and they have children, and the son of the Iraqi is forced by his father to marry his cousin because a Kurd is seen as lower in, in the Iraqi family's culture. And although they're both Muslims, she's a different kind of ethnic minority. And so therefore this tension between the two and being the forced marriage for the, for the son going on and the rejection of Medea and then the killing of her children. But that was doing something as enormous as Medea, even in a modern context, push me into the question of how do I show a woman killing her children? And I spoke to many women and many of them said to me, you can't do that today. No woman would kill her children. And then I began to read, uh, there are fewer women who kill their children than men who kill their children, but there are. Um, which, so I thought, okay, that's fine, but how am I gonna do it on stage? We're not gonna have children on stage. And so the, the writer director part of me thought, well, I'll have to just do this symbolically. Let, let's. We had used a lot of photographs of Kurdish women fighters who had died in the struggle as the set design. I thought, let me do it with photographs that she comes on stage with a photo of each child in her hand and she crushes the photograph and that symbolizes a death and it actually worked very well on stage. I'm always looking for ways of how do you make the huge uh, disturbing moment work in a minimalist way and so to go back to your question, that, that's a modern history, which is, it, it's unusual for me to write something that is of today, and, but that was very much a play of today. And, and uh, I've written a film script of it as well. It's, it still rather haunts me. And I'm very much in admiration of these women fighters in, in Kurdistan. I, uh, I, to put your life on the line, I suppose it goes back to that earlier question, putting your life on the line for, for something you really believe in is, is, is the finest cause to me. Thanks very much to Julia Pascal, one of our international members, for her play reading and her interview. If you are interested in Julia's work, you can contact her through the International Centre for Women Playwrights um, at womenplaywrights.org. Women Playwrights is all one word. Or Julia's own website, juliapascal.org, Julia Pascal being all one word as well. Thanks very much for listening to this podcast. There should be more coming very soon.